Greetings, all. Welcome back to the Coptimizer podcast. We've got a special edition on the road show. I'm with Eric Doden in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Gubernatorial. Did I say that right? Oh, my gosh. That's a hard word to say. I I, I try to avoid it at all costs. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, Patrick. I really, I really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time with us and our audience. And we met a few months ago. We had some conversations around public safety, what's going on in public safety, not just in Indiana, but nationally. And I look forward to the opportunity to continuing that discussion uh, with you here today. Same here. Should we... Wait, we didn't do any music. I didn't give any music. We should kick in with a little music, get ourselves fired up. Well, this is what happens when you take the show on the road, right? There's always new toys. There's always new things to learn. I was going to remind you about the music, but I'm a rookie, so I didn't think I should say anything. <laughs> well, that was cool. That that at least gets us fired up and gets us in the mood. So uh, before we get going, how about uh, maybe just take a couple minutes to introduce yourself and uh, let the audience know who you are and what you're up to. Sure. I, I, I'm Eric Doden. I grew up in uh, Butler, Indiana, a town of 2,500 people. Uh, when I was 15, we moved to Auburn, a metropolis of 12,000 people. Uh, so I grew up in small towns uh, that was really formative for me. Uh, and uh, that was a big part of, you know, my heritage and growing up. And then uh, Macy and I met in law school at Valparaiso after going to Hillsdale College. And we married and we celebrated 25 years of marriage this June. So somehow she has managed to put up with me. Uh, and then we have five children between the ages of 22 and 17. And we're officially empty nesters, which means I'm officially old. <laughs> Uh, and so we're still trying to adjust the idea that we do not have kids at home here coming up, but, uh, we just, uh, very blessed have had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun in our marriage. And I've just one of those lucky guys that married my best friend. So that's a little bit about us and who we are and, and, uh, what we've been up to. Well, 25 years for me as well this year, I hit 25 in April. So we've got that in common. That's and great. That's I great. definitely, uh, I would definitely punch in above my weight. I got really lucky. So well, I got a little offended when my dad said that you way outpunted your coverage. Usually it's just outpunted, <laughs> way outpunted your coverage. I thought it was a little excessive, but they're, they are right, of course. Yeah, parents generally know what they're talking about. Yeah. Uh, and we usually, we usually figure that out later in life. I used to say, my, the older I got, the smarter my dad got. Um, Very true. But in any case, so you come from a background in business, and you've done a lot of work with the state of Indiana. At one point, you were working on the uh, Indiana Economic Development Commission. Did I say that correctly? Corporation. Corporation. And you worked with uh, former Governor Pence on that. And I think there's a lot of things around that would make for great discussion today. And when we're thinking about policing, when we're thinking about the future of policing, but before we get into all that, you're running for governor. Yes. That's kind of like a big deal. Yes. <laughs> Why? Why? Well, I, I think for me it, it's uh, important that Indiana has a bold vision, especially for 
our small towns. Um, you know, we've spent a billion dollars a year in economic development for a long time, and we've never had a plan for the 2.3 million people that live in small towns. And so I think what um, inspired me to do this is uh, is a group of leaders that asked me to, to, to run and be engaged because they knew we had a vision for how we could transform communities around the state of Indiana, which is related to a lot of the topics we're going to discuss now. Because when you have distressed communities, you have distressed people. And so what we're really excited about is uh, three things. Number one, having vibrant communities around the state, and we have a plan to do that. Number two, making sure that we protect the vulnerable, which is a lot of what our law enforcement community does. And then number three, uh, make sure that we have efficient, effective government that really serves people. And uh, you're going to hear a lot about that in the next 10 months. Well, that's great. And I, I have to agree with you on all points there. Um, and I think everybody knows that I'm a retired police chief and spent uh, 30 years in policing. And it's interesting because one of the first things that you learn in, in, the, in the world of policing is it's, it's, it probably shouldn't be... Uh, it probably shouldn't be one of the first things that you learn, but you do learn that the apple does not fall far from the tree and, and you can see crime. You can see generational crime in, in the families that you're dealing with. But as you get a closer and up front and personal look at these issues, as a police officer does, you begin to see what causes that and where the roots of crime come from. And, and then you, you develop a, an appreciation and, and a frustration, I think, oftentimes about why can't we get ahead of this? Why can't we make investments at a very early time that, that can change the trajectory of, of a person's life that can steer them into prosperity rather than into uh, crime and, and other I guess maybe pathways that are um, less productive. That was that was a it was kind of a, a you know, for me growing up in you know West Lafayette, Indiana. Prior to that, I was you know in a suburb of Philadelphia when I was a little kid. Um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily get exposed to a whole lot in in my youth, and it was as a, as a young police officer, you know, my eyes got opened a little bit. Yeah, Patrick, you know, growing up with my mom and dad, one of the things they really stressed um, is the importance of self-discipline. Uh, and that doesn't come naturally. We're not born with self-discipline. You know, we're actually born pretty selfishly. <laughs> uh, and we want our food when we want it, and we want it taken care of, and we don't, we're going to cry about it. So, uh, you know, my parents were very, very good for me in terms of teaching us that actions have consequences, uh, the importance of self-discipline. I've kind of said it this way, and it sounds a little, maybe to some people, a little bit like a um, uh, a teacher would say it, but um, self-government or self-discipline is the first form of government. And so when you learn that from a young age, uh, you really learn that, hey, if I do things properly, good things happen. If I do things improperly, I have natural consequences. Um, some children don't have the good fortune of having parents that teach them that, and that becomes where, you know, the community and churches and and uh, boys and girls clubs and those types of things become important. But um, I think it's to your point, um, that's how you can begin to affect generational change is when these kids have these opportunities to learn self-discipline. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the the childhood that I have, I definitely, <laughs> I was definitely kept, you know, within within boundaries. Uh, and I always knew, like like when I was a kid, you, you didn't worry about the police. You never worried about the police. You worried about mom and dad. And this was in the in the era before cell phones. Uh, and it's to, it's amazing to me how like my parents seemed to find out if I was up to no good, they would find out long before I ever got home. And there was no text messaging. There was no social media. It was it was just old school. Uh, <laughs> I agree, communication. I mean, it was amazing how many times that my mom told me, be home by five for dinner. That's the rule. And by the time I got home, she found out the inappropriate or unseemly thing I did at the grocery (laughs) store. I'm like, mom, how did you know that? Like, at least could I just get home and be able to uh, tell you myself before you found out from the neighbor. But that's what happens when you grow up in a town of 2,500 people. Yeah, everybody knows everybody. Um, And, you know, small town America really has had a tough go. Um, the last 10, 20 years, it, and it's probably started even before that. But I, I read your book um, after we, we chatted, and uh, I don't know, do you want to tell a little bit about the story of, of I'm going to say this, Van Wert, Ohio? Did I say it correctly? Yes, you did. Okay. Because I think, it's, I think that's really cool. You know, Main Street in small-town America is every bit as important as Main Street in metropolitan areas in our state indiana indianapolis is the largest metropolitan city that's where state government is that's where everything you know that's kind of the center of the universe in indiana but uh, not everyone grows up in big cities i think you were alluding to just a minute ago yeah so um van wert to give you this context is my mom's hometown um so she grew up in van wert my my dad grew up in Auburn and Butler and around Indiana, they met at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and then got married and then moved back to Butler and Auburn. So that was kind of their background. So Van Wert has a special place in my heart. My grandparents were lifelong Buckeyes. Uh, my grandpa uh, passed away at 85, my grandma about the same age, but they were always in Van Wert um, and very, very rarely wanted to travel uh, and were depression era kids. And so they um, were very frugal. Uh, and they taught me frugality, by the way. Um, so, um, do they store their bread in the freezer? Oh, all that, you know, <laughs> they used to take the plastic bags and turn them out and wash them and then dry them. I'm like, um, my mom still to this day does that. And we, you know, as much as we've tried to break her of it, it's like, mom, you know, we don't need to do that. She does well, it I, anyway. We're getting a little bit. Of, but one of my funny <laughs> stories with my grandpa was, um, when he passed away, I was responsible to take care of the t-shirt drawer for some reason. And he had the thinnest T-shirt I've ever held in my hands and a bag, a, ba- a package of brand new T-shirts underneath. And I'm thinking, Grandpa, what were you waiting on? <laughs> like, could But he always liked to have a little extra, right? Because they grew up with, with yeah. nothing. And so that's kind of the, the background. And so as you get involved in the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, you're using and seeing a lot of tools being used for the big cities. And if you think about it, a big city is a series of neighborhoods. Um, and so these are really kind of small towns within a big city, but then they add up to be, you know, a 2 million person metro. So as I'm thinking about this, Patrick, and I'm watching this, I'm thinking, man, of course, my heart's still back in Butler and Auburn. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. If they're using these tools to fix these neighborhoods, the same tools that they're using to fix the neighborhoods, we should be able to fix our small towns with. And that was the sort of beginning of the idea. 
And the first town to call me when I had this idea was Van Wert, Ohio. So their situation was they had 116 buildings in their downtown that they thought were historically significant. Out of those 116, 16 were government and churches, so they were in pretty good shape. But out of 100 buildings that were left, 80 of them were falling down. And they had $100 million in their community foundation, and they made, uh, following our program, they made the decision to put $3.5 million of that off of Wall Street into their Main Street fund, and we bought 52 of their 80 buildings in 18 months and are restoring those roughly 10 at a time until we completely restore the entire neighborhood, the entire city, the entire town. And then they're going and curating the restaurants, the retail, the uh, entertainment venues so that they can re, basically reestablish what they had back in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's when you drive into a small town, whether it's in Indiana, whether it's in Ohio, Kentucky, you know, since uh, since my my retirement from policing last year, I've have spent a lot of time in in smaller towns, driving through smaller towns, and you know sometimes you see a lot of hope when you get into the right into the right cities where there where you can tell people care, they invest, and then you can also go into other communities where there's a lot of despair. And I think you know, when we look into the Rust Belt and areas like that where we see how hard they've been hit. Um, you know, when you lose major manufacturing, when you, when jobs go away and then you get issues with, uh, you know, what I dealt a lot with, uh, you know, the, with methamphetamine and then the opioid crisis, you can really kind of see how quickly things can spiral out of control. So, so maybe the question there as you're, as you're, uh, taking this opportunity and making this run, thinking about small town America, one of the things that people oftentimes lose sight of is that safety and public safety are really one of your biggest economic drivers for any community. That if people don't feel safe and if there is high crime, then they're not going to relocate there or they're, or they're going to look for safety elsewhere. And generally that's going to be where they feel like there's opportunity. So is, I mean, what what's your what I guess maybe what's your thought on that as you, as you go through this process and I'm sure you've experienced this um, you know as you as you did that work in in Van Wert and maybe other other places. Yeah, you know um, when you look at the United States as an experiment, you know we've been at this since 1776 roughly, maybe a little before that if you count you know the the era of of migration from you know around the world, but um, the United States has really been outrageously successful and I've um, really deeply believe that that's because of our commitment to law and order and we under under like no country on earth are committed to law and order and the proof of that is in Butler and Auburn if I'm in the on a county road and there's a four-way stop and I've often laughed at myself about this um, everyone I know stops now there's no one around for miles there's not a single car there's not a police officer, there's nothing, but we will stop at that stop sign because that stop sign says we're to stop. Now I've gone to some foreign countries where they don't stop at anything, you know, like they, they, they have red lights and they just blow right through it and it's chaos. And half the time you're wondering if you're going to even make it to the hotel. <laughs> uh, but in America, in the United States and in, in America where we live, we have a deep commitment in our roots to law and order. And that's kind of proven by the fact that as we migrated across the West, 
and remember, Indiana used to be the West back in the day. If you go to these towns, the first three things they built were churches. A They built usually a beautiful courthouse. And then they also built an education center. Now, sometimes the church was both, but they often would build some education center. And, and then eventually, of course, Carnegie and others brought libraries and things like that. But um, we were deeply committed to churches, law and order, you know, the courthouse, and then to make sure that we could educate our kids, even in the era where we were coming across on horse and buggy. So um, I think you look at that and you can understand why we're such a significant part of the world's GDP. And with, with that in mind, I think the last couple years, America is getting a look at what life might be like without law and order. We're starting to see glimpses of lawlessness and the scale at which people are seeing it. I think it's, it's kind of scary. And, you know, in the, in the post George Floyd era, in the, in the months and, and quite frankly, even the year after that, there's just been a big adjustment. So in policing itself, there, there is a lot, there's a lot that we can learn from how the last few years have gone. But I think the biggest lesson for everybody is when people don't feel safe, you've got problems. Correct. And that's, uh, but, you know, but safety really is, it's kind of a nebulous thing, right? And, you know, as a chief, people used to always ask me all the time, like, you know, how do you define success? How, do, how does a police chief design, define whether they're, they're doing a good job or not? And I'm like, that's a great question, because if you ask chiefs, you're probably going to get a lot of different answers. You know, and in the end, what we decided on is what we were just trying to identify is, look, if I send, if I send my, my wife or my daughter or one of my children wants to go to the grocery store at 10 o'clock at night, um, they should be able to jump in the car and go to the grocery store. And if they're doing that and I'm having the thought like, well, which store are they going to? Um, and how long are they going to be there? Are, and I, if I don't feel like they're going to be safe, then as, you know, as a police chief, that, and then that's my responsibility. Like we should feel safe to move freely about the city anytime, day or night, to be able to do what we need to do, whether it's for fun, work, or pleasure, whatever. And um, I, I think right now people are worried about what that looks like moving forward. And uh, I think in, you know, downtown Indianapolis is a good example. And I'll just bring that up because I know that's one of the areas that you were talking about. Still have some boarded up businesses down there. Um, there, there are area, you know, there are businesses that are not just there, but all across the U.S. where the businesses are shutting down, they're leaving and they're going. And I was just following a conversation about this the other day. Like, what's going to replace that? What's coming? What's coming in if there is no law and order? If people don't feel safe, what businesses? How do you how do you revitalize a downtown where people don't feel safe? Yeah, we saw. I want to. Can I start before we go to Indianapolis with sure. Fort Wayne? And in, in two thousand and one, we started having kids, and we had four kids in four years, ten months. So we uh, had a lot of kids quickly, and um, and that then you know we would <laughs> uh, we won't comment on that, right, Patrick? Well, I'm the youngest of eight, and my uh, my oldest sister is only eleven years older than me. So yeah, so yeah, you know what <laughs> having a lot of kids quickly means. So um, we would take them down uh, on Saturday downtown. And on Sunday, we would go to church, and, and people at church would say, hey, what did you guys do last night? And I said, well, we took our kids downtown. And they said, are you kidding me? That's not safe. I, I mean, uh, why would you do that? Now, this is like 2005 and six in Fort Wayne. 
And I said, guys, um, it's completely safe. There's nobody there. And then they start laughing. But the perception yeah. in Fort Wayne was downtown wasn't safe. And I would talk to some of my friends who lived downtown. And in, I had friends in the police department, Fort Wayne Police Department. And they said there was a lot of petty crime downtown because it was crime of opportunity. Was we begin to transform Fort Wayne and begin to restore this downtown over the last 10 years. All that has dissipated. There's no, uh, people are not afraid of downtown. They see downtown as vibrant, cool, safe, a place to go with your family. We see baby carriages everywhere downtown now. That's a good, healthy sign. Now, you go to Indianapolis, and over the last two years as I've been on the road, I've heard a completely different story for two years. People telling me that we never go downtown anymore because we don't feel safe. That's the words they use, we don't feel safe. Um, And people telling me that they've moved from downtown because they don't feel safe. And you're right, Patrick, if you don't feel safe and you are not safe, then that can impact your entire community in a way that um, really can cause a lot of problems um, with economic development, with family development, with education, and a variety of other things that we deeply care about. Yeah, and and so maybe, um, you know, this conversation might be a little bit more specific for people that are in Indiana, but I, I think there's a lot that everybody can take away from this because, these are the discussions that are occurring all over America. It doesn't matter if it's Indianapolis or Minneapolis. You know, they've, they, they, you know, they're they're having all kinds of issues up there. A lot of change, a lot of a lot of turnover uh, in in their police department and other and and quite frankly, we're seeing that everywhere we go. So you you proposed, uh, I, I thought something that sounded pretty unique. I'm I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about it about what you're going to do if, if you were elected governor about how you would uh, create um, a, a safer downtown Indianapolis through partnerships. And I'm curious, number one, what, 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 what are your thoughts on what, what are your ideas on that? And then two, maybe how, how has that been received? And, and I, I think probably uh, you probably get mixed messages. I'm just making an assumption there, but. Well, um, first of all, let's talk about what the problem we begin to see. Um, we were educated by people who are in the entertainment and the convention business that, you know, we have 29 million visitors a year that, that come to Indianapolis and where Hoosiers entertain them. We make uh, a lot of um, state sales and income tax on those visitors. Uh, and they were concerned that that would be at risk. Then we begin to look at the assets in downtown Indianapolis, and we as taxpayers across the state have put a lot of money in the convention center. We put a lot of money in Lucas Oil Field. We put a lot of money in the state capitol buildings and all the state buildings, and that's all within that capital zone. And we also saw a lot of potholes and people like telling me, coming up and saying, look, I'm losing my tires, my front end. I'm, this is like, they use this term, this is like a hidden tax. You know, it cost me like a thousand bucks to fix my car. Yeah. And uh, and then they were also telling me about um, several crimes that they either witnessed or happened to them within just walking from their hotel room to a meeting during the broad daylight. Yep. So this is the kind of feedback we're getting. And if it would have been one time, you could have maybe said, well, that that was an aberration. But this began to happen over and over and over again. So as we begin to look at the cost to the state of Indiana for having a downtown Indianapolis where a lot of us go to a Colts game, we go to a Pacers game, we go to be entertained for some period of time. Uh, many of my friends in Fort Wayne go down there for a weekend uh, to shop or to be part of the 
the energy of the center of our city, um, or to go to the state house, that it was just unacceptable that we not have safe streets and not have uh, world-class infrastructure within our capital city. And so that was really uh, the impetus of starting the capital zone idea. And then we had to meet with a lot of different leaders to make sure that we understood all the different issues. So it took us about a year for it to come out. Uh, but it really is about making sure that we have a safe capital city and that we have world-class infrastructure so that we can compete and even beat our other peer cities that we compete against every day for jobs, wages, growth, economics, and that type of thing. Well, and I think no matter where you live in the U.S., you're probably familiar with Indianapolis because the head of the NCAA is down there. We host a lot of, of very big events, not you know, Super Bowl, NCAA championships, the Colts are there, a large convention center, conventions, I think, like the International Firefighters Association, I think they have their annual conference there. So when you have people coming from all over the country, and we all do this, and and people can say what they want, right? But you're making judgments all the time about where you are and how you feel. Uh, Anyone in any city, when you go someplace where you're not familiar, you're not comfortable with where you are, the first assessment that you're making is, do I feel safe? And what are some of the things that don't make us feel safe? Um, homelessness. When when people are approached by uh, people on the street, panhandlers, aggressive panhandlers, that in and of itself can lead to significant concerns about personal safety. And <laughs> I, I've had a lot of conversations about this over the years because we we get a lot of calls, uh, you know, in police departments about homelessness and this is kind of maybe maybe where we can kind of start steering the conversation more specifically towards policing because this that is a call for service. If someone calls the police and says, "Hey, there's there's someone that's panhandling. They're aggressive. They're making me not feel safe." Well, that's a call. So you the police department is going to send somebody there to check it out. And calls for service they come in all day long and depending on the type of environment that you're in, but in Indianapolis is a very busy metropolitan area. Uh, and, and so that's going to require resources and you need people to go handle those calls. And, and then when you get there, you have to be able to do something with it. And oftentimes the police, they get a little bit of a brunt of the frustration because people don't want to be accosted when they go to Walgreens or to McDonald's or wherever it is that they're going and that's what's happening to them. And and when they don't feel safe, they call the police. And when the police show up, if they don't do something, well, then they feel like the police don't care. And that's not necessarily the case. It's just, you know, there's in many, many places, and I don't know if there's any place where being homeless is a crime. And I don't think there's anyone that would suggest that it should be a crime. But now the next step, the, the next question is, is, well, what do we do about that? Um, and I think this goes to your, your, your point about having the right type of economic opportunity. If there's no jobs or if, there's, if you have high levels of mental illness then, and you have a high level of, of, of a population that's on the street that doesn't make people feel safe, then people expect something to be done about it. And um, it's, it's a huge issue. And I'm trying to make this thought succinct, but I'm already kind of rambling a bit. As from a police perspective what do what what can we do in government and and really as a community to help tackle some of these ideas 
to not just make the problem go away, right? Because it's easy to take somebody and drive them somewhere else, or it's easy to shoo them into an area where they're not in the public eye, but that's not solving the problem. It's just displacing the problem and it's prolonging an issue that's there. And that eventually that's just probably going to come back and, and, and bite you in the rear one way or another. So how do we, how do we address an issue like that? Well, I, I, we think a lot about this and here's a couple of thoughts, just sort of big picture. One is the importance and dignity of work. Um, so work gives us dignity. I know for me, when I wake up and I'm trying to transform Van Wert, Ohio, I look forward every day to waking up and getting to work. And it gives me a sense of purpose, gives me a sense of dignity. So when you're without work, that could be a, a first step of, of, of a problem because you lack the dignity of work. But another thing that you know we also know is that if you're addicted, if you have addiction issues, um, you're, you're not likely to be able to work. Uh, and you're also struggling. So um, you're struggling with a lot of things um, just health-wise. And so we, we have to have, I think, one of the things that leaders do is they're conveners. And um, bureaucracies, especially in government, will tell you two things. If you just give me more money and more people, we'll solve the problem. Well, we've seen in the United States that we put trillions of dollars into poverty. And what we've created is multi-generation of poverty within the same family. Putting yep. more money at something doesn't always solve the problem. What you have to do is be innovative. And oftentimes, bureaucracies are not innovative. So what we're trying to do is partner with 501c3s, churches, people that are doing innovative things, helping people with addiction, kick addiction habits, helping them with mental health issues. Uh, and they're doing some really creative, innovative things with wraparound services that not only help them kick the addiction, but then get them into work right away so they get that dignity. And these are some of the creative things I think that we can do, Patrick. We're not going to solve every problem. You know, one person is not going to change the life of 6.7 or 6.8 million Hoosiers. But when you put a team together around these issues, you can begin to address them. And then last, what I'll say is if you have a bold vision for your community like we did with Fort Wayne, where we begin to come in and say, we are not going to have broken windows. We are not going to have boarded up facilities. We're not going to let, we did not let people riot in our streets. As soon as they started rioting, that was shut down. They could, they had every opportunity to say their piece verbally. You know, they, they could, you know, uh, march, they could talk, but as soon as they started throwing bricks through windows, that was that, that was over. You know, they, they were stopped from doing that, arrested, whatever the case may be. We, we have to have that kind of approach, I think, even in downtown Indianapolis. And then if we do have a broken window, we fix it the next day. You don't wait months. One of the things that bothered me after the, the riots occurred is 10 months later, I was walking downtown and still seeing tons of, I mean, I couldn't even count how many boarded up windows I saw yeah. with plywood. Yeah, I was I was surprised by that as well. Um, and that, that is, we, we could talk a lot about uh, that. Broken windows has, um, has gotten a lot of attention in the last few years. If from a policing perspective, there's, you know, for those may have not heard, broken windows theory is actually a, a policing theory that was put to work in um, primarily in New York City is where it really gained a lot of attention in the early 90s. And for all those reasons, right? Crimes of disorder got a lot of attention because uh, crimes of disorder, uh, low-level crimes that are eventually left. And the, and the principle and the theory is, is that um, you know, if a street light is out, and there's no light in a dark area, then crime can gravitate towards that area. 
And even though that the, the levels of crime may be something that's minor or insignificant, that can eventually grow. And so areas where if you can shine a light, um, not just, um, you know, not just a street light, but, you know, the, the light of resources, then you can help keep those areas cleaned up and then prevent, prevent those problems from growing and, and getting worse. But what that requires is interaction between the police and, and those the people that live in those communities. And, uh, that that has that has caused conflict, and I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. Obviously, I'm coming from the police perspective, so um, you know we we get into discussions about Terry stops and what that actually means. But you know, I, I think sometimes we have a tendency to throw the the baby out with the bathwater when we when we have something that maybe we disagree with. We just try to blow up the whole thing instead of just digging in to actually understand what are what are the problems that are occurring, and that's and that's really what we've seen. From a policing perspective, for the last couple of years, these these ideas that somehow policing is broken in America and it needs to be completely revamped. And the 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 word that I hear a lot is reimagined. We need to reimagine policing. And and I take a position that you know policing has never been better in America. It quite frankly it hasn't. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of areas that that we can improve upon. And so maybe maybe that's a great segue for this conversation is that if you in in any endeavor, if you want to improve something, if you want to raise the level of professionalism, then you have to invest in it. Uh, it whether it's it's a human resources, whether it's uh, whether it's a capital infusion, training, all of these education, all of these things re- are required. And we've seen a lot of that. Um, across America in policing today, there is a, there's a recruitment issue. There is a retention issue. We're just not getting people that are wanting to come into the profession. And with all of that external pressure, high levels of scrutiny, a demand for high levels of professionalism, no shortage of, of work. Um, and then, a very, very low tolerance for mistakes. And, and so it's, that's kind of a big way of saying, what do you, I mean, what are your thoughts on the future of policing? I mean, from, from what you're getting as you're out on the road and you're talking with leaders around, I mean, what's, what's your feel for it right now? Well, first of all, I, I would start with this. Uh, I have a lot of friends that I've had in the police policing police force different levels um some state police some local some sheriffs one of the things i would say consistently in my experience is that my friends have a big servant's heart there are people that uh, you know probably could have gone in a different path in life and maybe you know maybe uh run businesses or you know done things that would uh have maybe even made them more money uh, but they chose this because they really wanted to serve people and sometimes i think we we underestimate, you know, we kind of forget about that, the servant heart, because you focus on the one or two that did something shouldn't have done instead of the millions that have a, a real servant's heart for people and really want to serve and make their community better. So that's one observation I've made of my friends that do that, uh, that go into that profession. But also we know that as operators, and I'm an operator, I've operated, you know, a lot of things in my career, uh, communities, businesses, uh, you have to have the right tools, that's one of your jobs as a leader is to make sure that you have the right tools. 
Um, if you ask someone to do something with the wrong tools, uh, it's unfair, <laughs> you know, and then you have to have the right training. Like I, I remember one time uh, I was asked to do something pretty significant and I had no idea where to even start because I had no, tra- they're just saying, Hey, you go, I don't even tell you what it was because <laughs> You know, you go fix this, and I'm like, how do I don't even know what to do here? Like, and they just left, right? They didn't give me any training; they just to go fix it. By the way, my kids know that if Dad tries to fix something, it never goes well. So, um, you have to have the right tools, you have to have the right training, and then you have to have the right resources. You know, asking me to go um, fix something when it costs ten thousand dollars to fix, and you give me a thousand dollars, well, that's not you know very reasonable, right? Um, it's probably not going to be a good fix. So you have to have the right tools, the right training, the right resources, uh, and then there has to be accountability. Um, you might give someone the right tools, training, and resources, but if you don't hold them accountable, sometimes they use the resources for other things. So those are the things that we have to make sure as a society we do with the people that serve us. Um, and that's one of the things we're going to be deeply committed to uh, and to make sure that um, beyond that, then we, um, we thank them we're grateful for what they do so that we can feel safe and be safe within our communities. And I think when we begin to do that again in our society, we're going to find more and more people that are willing to join uh, and serve. I like to make the joke. It's, it's cops, teachers, and coaches, you know, are, and I'm sure this applies to a lot of other professions as well, but generally speaking, those are the three professions that, that people haven't done that always think that they can do better. (laughs) You know, I played I played high school football. So when I sit on the sidelines and I watch my son's high school high school football game, you know, uh, that I I should know. You know, why isn't the coach calling this play? Or you know, I've watched Blue Bloods, so I I know the police should be doing this. CSI, ask any cop about CSI. Um, Well, Patrick, I mean, every Sunday I watch (laughs) NFL football, I'm questioning whether the coach knows what they're doing. I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, we're always quite like, well, why didn't the coach call that play, you know? Uh, So, we, yeah, we do have a a habit of of sometimes, you know, thinking that we could do better than than somebody else, regardless of what it is, right, sports or whatever the case may be. Yeah, and my my point in bringing that up is it's in – I'm guilty of it just like anybody else is, right? Uh, I've got my favorite teams and I I have my questions – but, you know, when it, when it does come to policing, you know, that's obviously near and dear to my heart. So over the last few years, we've seen a lot of people from the outside make judgments about what police officers are doing and why without a fundamental understanding of the process that goes on behind it. And when we talk about what you said, preparing, giving people the right resources, uh, I think in Indiana, we do a really good job. And, and people, don't, it's a very complex environment. Um in that you have a main centralized academy for most of Indiana. Uh, The state police has their own academy. And then our large metropolitans, like where you live here in Fort Wayne, they have an academy. Uh, The Indianapolis Metro Department has an academy. And then we have a couple satellite academies up in northwest Indiana and down in uh, southwest Indiana. All of those uh, run under the umbrella of the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy and the Law Enforcement Training Board, which I I was fortunate enough to serve on that for a few years. And that's where I really got a, a, a really good understanding and a, and a true appreciation for the challenge that they face. And the resources there, um, quite frankly, over the last couple of decades have really been lacking. And, and just a couple of years ago, as one of the positives that came out of some of the uh, 
the defund the police movement and uh, some of the scrutiny we're facing is a big capital investment into the academy. But, you know, if I'm being frank, it's right now, it's kind of like a Band-Aid on an arterial bleed because it's been neglected for so long. Um, the, the capital infusion is good, but maybe, you know, maybe the question for you is coming from your business background and your expertise and being able to, if we can revitalize a downtown that was crumbling, maybe we can do the same thing for our police academies and our police training and just policing overall. How do we invest as a state in making sure that we're, we're attracting the best possible talent and then we're giving them the best training that we can give them and then the training and the equipment and the technology to go out and do the things that we need to keep our community safe, whether it's Auburn, Butler, Lafayette, Fort Wayne, Indianapolis. Yeah, I think one of the things that the the best qualities of leaders that I've seen are when leaders have a curious mind. That's one of the best qualities of a leader that I've seen uh, when they're a great leader. If you have a curious mind, that means you're going to bring people that know more about a topic than you do into a room. And what I love to do is get about 10 or 12 of them. You get too many more and it becomes a gaggle. <laughs> but you get about 10 or 12 of them in the room and you inspire through your questions healthy debate. So you want to hear from every perspective. And if you really have a curious mind that can and ask good questions, you get a more well-rounded perspective and then ultimately leads to a better answer. And then the other thing is you just, sometimes you just have to act because what you have to do is act and then adjust. Act and then adjust because nothing is ever going to be perfect. But you have to do those things in order for you to make progress. And so I think that's something we're going to need to do with training is let's get the right people in the room around the table, have a good um, healthy debate discussion about it, and then pick a strategy and then adjust that strategy to keep it going in a better way. Uh, and that's there's a lot of topics that need to have that, right. but certainly this is one of them. Well, police policing is is interesting. In Indiana, our academy, the basic training is it's right around 500 hours to be a certified police officer, and I think um, to be a, a licensed cosmetolo- cosmetologist, it's like 1500 hours. Um, and so, when people hear that kind of perspective, they're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like my hairdresser has more training than, than my local police officer. And it's like, well, what we're talking about is being able to train. And and some, this is what sometimes people fail to understand is when we send uh, officers to an academy, that is a centralized location where we're going to give them the training to become a base level proficient police officer, because not every community is resource the same because they could be going back. They could be, and this is, you know, 80% of police departments in America are, are under 50 officers. Um, and most of them are, are, are even smaller than that. Like I think it's close to 50% of police departments have less than 10 officers. So if you're in a small community with no resources, um, you might actually get hired. And this is true in Indiana. You could get hired uh, today, go through a 40 hour class next week. And then the week after that, you could be carrying a gun being out on the street and, you know, when you hear things like that, that's count, that sounds kind of scary, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's not a lot of training. That's a lot of responsibility with not a lot of preparation. Now, fortunately, most, you know, that's a, that's a rarity, and most police departments have in-house training, and there's, it's an apprenticeship program that goes along with that training. 
but it requires but it does require time and it requires effort and it requires resources so um there there are big disparities in in how police officers are trained from one department to another um so at the academy level if if we have this if we have this capital infusion and we can build really high quality state of the art facilities where we can start to train and now we can develop some long term uh funding mechanisms then i think what we can do as a state is really really launch our our police the future of policing into the stratosphere so to speak i mean i i like to think big too um and that that's kind of exciting when you think about stuff like that but i think until something like that happens you know we're always kind of police training it it's not a problem until it's a problem and then, and then when the when a problem happens then the questions get asked right that's right that's <laughs> like right. you hop on a mini sub and you go a couple thousand feet below the surface of the water and it's not a problem until it's a problem and then, and then afterwards we kind of look and say well we should have known this was a problem and you know some people did but they just didn't act right so i like i like what you said there you ever heard the expression uh, fire ready aim uh yes <laughs> some people maybe accuse me from time to time uh, of that but you know the, the thing i do believe is um that you know kind of like flying a plane right you have to adjust the dials you know you don't just like get up in the air and set the course i mean you have to continue to look at the dials and adjust them um i remember when we did regional cities initiative uh for the first time i'm not sure if i probably should play this much inside baseball but i'm going to because it was really a funny conversation the budget director for the state of indiana called me in and said hey we're gonna put this hundred and 26 million into regional cities and i just want to understand everything that's going to have to happen here to make this work and i looked at him and i smiled and i said chris uh we're going to jump off the cliff and build the plane while we're going down and we're going to figure it out as we go and he goes what i he goes in all my ever my days of being in the budget i've never even like that's crazy and i was like but chris that's the way this is going to work because we can't predict all the lights are not going to be green from here to Chicago. You're going to have to figure it out as we go. And that was, um, he never did. He told me later, like a year later, he goes, I've never forgotten that conversation when he told me we just had to jump off and figure it out before he hit the ground. Uh, but sometimes that's what you have to do as a leader is you have to try to figure it out while you're, while you're doing, while you're acting. And, and that's the only way you can make progress. So the other aspect of the, um, is in attracting and training, preparing the best police officers we can find. It's also, we also have to support them. And we, we have to understand that we're asking them to do a very difficult job. Um, one, of, one of the conversations that's come up nationally the last couple of years, and it, it's come, it's, it was brought up again here recently, is about qualified immunity. Um, do you... I think you've got a pretty good understanding, but maybe for those that are listening, I mean, what would, what's your take on qualified immunity? And do you think it's important for police officers? Yeah, we, um, I think it's critical to keep qualified immunity. And I try to explain it in simple terms this way. If you're a police officer acting in good faith to do your job and in the course of doing that job, do something that ended up in hindsight, not being the right thing to do. Uh, for example, you, you you should have not gone in and looked in the trunk or, you know, whatever. Um, 
you have a qualified immunity, you cannot be personally, your family cannot be personally sued or liable for that. Now, what qualified immunity doesn't count uh, or doesn't apply to is if you do something illegal. Uh, everyone knows that if you do something illegal, you have to follow the same rules and you're um, you're required uh, to follow the same laws that everyone else is. You can't just go out, you know, qualified immunity is not full immunity. It's qualified meaning that you acted in good faith. And, and, you know, nobody should do their job acting in good faith and then have their family financially ruined uh, because somebody sued them for acting in good faith. And that's why I think it's important to make sure that we protect qualified immunity. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, we, were, we were pretty outspoken uh, from the Indiana Chiefs Association and, and I know other, the other state organizations. Um, the, and the way I try to explain it to people, it's, it's like you can't change the rules in the middle of the game and then hold somebody accountable for not knowing what the rules are. Yeah, and another good way to explain it. The, the qualified immunity that police officers have is for just what I think you explained it very well in that if, if an officer makes a mistake, but if they make the mistake out of malice and, and through criminal activity, then they, they can be held accountable. Qualified immunity doesn't provide any protection. They can be right. held accountable and will be held accountable, not just criminally, but also civilly. So all of the penalties that they could face, they will. Um, but, if you have if you if you have an officer that is acting in good faith that at the you know at the time that they do something they believe they're doing the right thing and here's the simple way to put it like uh, the Rayshard Brooks case was a perfect example in Atlanta because it, qualified immunity got brought it gets brought up after a lot of controversial police use of force cases and what people don't realize is that you know police officers are under significant amount of pressure in a time compressed moment to make a decision that that could cost them their life or it could cost a citizen their life if they don't act appropriately. Um, and police, police and citizens have about, I think, I think the last time I was looking at it, it was like 46 million contacts a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of those that wind up, uh, there's a very small percentage of those cases actually involve any, any level of force. And then those that involve, the level of deadly force where officers, uh, where shootings are involved, where, where suspects are, are injured or killed is basically around a thousand cases a year. And, and it's when you, when you look at the data, in, you know, in, in, from a, from a, that 50,000 foot view, you, you really, this is where I go back to saying, you know what, it's amazing how well we do the job. Um, it's not to say that there aren't a few cases here and there where, we definitely where officers need to be held accountable because either ne- you know gross negligence or um, or just malintent, but th- those cases are few and far between. And the danger in removing qualified immunity is just like you said, it's like you're asking an officer to go out and make those types of decisions and not have any. There's no safety net. There's and I don't I don't know that anyone would want to do a job like that. And and particularly when the people that are making the laws are protected by full immunity. Correct. And, you know, so there's a hypocrisy there. It's like, well, how can you, well, you can do whatever you want, but you're going you're gonna to ask me to be second-guessed under very, very split-second decisions. And, and so that's where I think there was a lot of frustration uh, from police departments. And, and we're seeing, it'll be interesting to see long-term, it's kind of, 
you know, some of the some of the municipalities in the country that have gone away and they've changed their rules around qualified immunity. They've they've been experiencing police officers leave. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects uh, policing long term. Well, Patrick, the other thing I've really tried to learn in my career and I'm 53 now, so I've had a few years to try to learn, you know, these things. But one of the things that's important when you're a leader in crisis is to remain calm. Uh, and to, to, to the concept of due process in our law, which I really appreciate is the fact that if somebody accuses me of doing something either criminally illegal or even civilly illegal, there's a deliberative process with which, uh, there's investigations and it has to be proven in a court of law, uh, with due process. It's not snap. It's not might makes right. Or because I'm more powerful than you, I get to, you know, say I'm right. You're wrong. There's due process. And sometimes that due process can feel painfully slow. But when I've been accused of doing something that I didn't do, I'm really grateful (laughs) that there's due process, right? And my friends are too, by the way. If I did do something, then I, I, you know, I need to be held accountable for that. And even if it takes longer than it should to be held accountable, there needs to be accountability. I would rather err on the side of a deliberative process that gives the people the right to defend themselves from the accusation a little longer than maybe we'd want it to take then air air on the snap decision of, well, we think you did this without much investigation. We're going to punish you for that, whatever it is that you did. Yeah. And I had a saying that I used to tell community members when they would be frustrated about maybe they feel like there's inaction on the police department or the it's taking too long. The prosecutor is taking too long whatever that might be. But I always say, you know, the wheels of justice turn, they just turn at their own pace and it's generally a lot slower than anybody wants. And that's a good thing because if that starts moving too fast, then things get missed. And, um, and the, the Rayshard Brooks case is a perfect example. There were, there were, there were people publicly making claims that, that the officers there were wrong, um, that they, they shouldn't have used deadly force in that case. Um, and as it turns out, as we let the process work that's been working for the last hundred years, letting things move through the court system, letting case law and state law and everything dictate how that's going to play out, the, the officers were ultimately, uh, there was no charges filed against them uh, because they couldn't, right? They did exactly, um, I think, what most normal human beings would expect that you would do if you were faced with the fear of, of uh, being assaulted with deadly force, or there, you run a risk of of being killed for just going out and doing your job, and so it's it's another good example another good example of of why I think people it's it's important to pay attention, but it's also important to let the process play out. Well, Patrick, I've seen this as a father. Um, your kid comes in and says X Y Z happened, and you have a tendency as a father to make a snap decision <laughs> about. Well, how did X, Y, Z happen? And you already are kind of accusing, and I, I've done this a couple times, maybe just three, Patrick. I'm not sure more than that. But. <laughs> and so then you start asking your kid more questions. Well, what led to that and what made that happen? And by the time you get more of the story, all of a sudden as a father, you're realizing that I might have, might have overreacted. And uh, all of a sudden you have a different perspective of why you're, your child did what they did and suddenly you're not in the frame of mind to punish them in the same way that maybe you would have been when they first said X, Y, Z happened. This happens in all life. 
And that's what due process does is allows the more full story to come out so that people can make an informed decision about what they really think uh, should happen, whether it's punishment or, uh, or they are exonerated. And, and I've always been amazed at how just a couple things that changed in the story changed my perspective. All right. So while we're on this subject real quick, you know, speaking of prosecutors, um, you know, some of the frustration that police officers will have at times is they feel like sometimes the criminal justice system can be a revolving door system. And you have somebody, you arrest somebody, you take them to jail. And before you're even back to the state, before you've even written your report, they're back out on the street and uh, we're, <laughs> we're arresting them again or they're, or they're getting into trouble again. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of cases out there right now where we're starting to see that this is becoming problematic and uh, it is, you know, and I, I have, uh, you know, a part of me, I think, understands the pressure that, that prosecutors' offices can be under, that, that just the, the amount of just the weight of the system and the, and the sheer volume of cases that come through, especially in large metropolitan areas, but... There's also there's also a part of me that that gets really frustrated when we have rules and like I mentioned it before right you can't change the the rules in the middle of the game and then expect it to to come out fairly uh, you got any I, I know that was something that you mentioned in part of your plan for Indianapolis but what are, what are your thoughts on that yeah I think there needs to be a real collaboration between the prosecutors and uh, the police uh, general assembly and the governor. Obviously, the General Assembly makes laws. Governor does not, but the governor has an influence over some of what could be passed and obviously could veto it, but we also know we have a weak governor system and those vetoes are frequently overridden. So it's it's got to be a collaborative effort. We've actually suggested in, in, in Indianapolis that there be a prosecutorial review board that would review some of these situations uh, because there have been times where people that have done you know, very dangerous committed or potentially committed very dangerous crimes got out very quickly with low bonds and then they committed even more uh, dangerous and sometimes life-threatening crime. Uh, and so, um, look, as, again, as leaders, we all should crave accountability. We should not be afraid of accountability and or afraid of being questioned. You know, our judgment's not perfect. We're human. And so this review board could be, I think, a good process for uh, accountability just to make sure that we're we saw things correctly that we're doing them correctly and then I think within the context of the law to make sure that we have um, the right laws in, in place to make sure that we don't have an easy way for violent or potentially violent criminals to get back out in the streets without effectively another you know there's kind of a due process here too right right yeah uh, there should be some deliberation if someone committed a violent crime there should be some deliberation, some cooling off period before they're allowed to just come back out and then maybe do a even more violent crime. Yeah. And the police departments in Indiana, we have what they call merit laws, merit rules, and, and they establish these civilian review boards. And I think of a process very similar to that. So there, there is a check and there is a balance that you have these members that are made up of your communities that sit on these review boards. And a lot of people in Indiana don't realize that, you know, as a chief of police, I didn't hire people and I didn't fire people. I made recommendations for hiring and I made recommendations for discipline and for termination. 
but it, it's our civilian review board that actually makes those decisions. And that is a good check and balance um, for, you know, and, and I, and I think the more people understand, you know, how the sausage gets made, the more confidence they actually have in the system. And, but it is, it, it is a little bit, I think, frustrating for people to realize that we can go through the legislative process, we can create laws. Um, and then, you know, on, you know, on the policing side, we can go out and we can arrest dangerous criminals. And then one person can make a determination about whether, you know, whether they go to jail or not. And, uh, you know, another myth that, that gets perpetuated a lot is, oh, we've got people that are sitting in jail for smoking a joint, you know, um, or, you know, they're going to prison, they're doing hard time for marijuana. And, you know, there are people that are getting arrested for, for what might be viewed as a low-level drug offense, but no, but people are going to prison for things like that. If people realize how hard it was to get someone actually into prison in the first place, they would be a little bit concerned about how how easy and maybe flippant sometimes we we don't hold them accountable. So I'll be keeping an eye on that. It'll be interesting to watch to see be. how those conversations go in the future. But I know we're, we're these conversations go really quick for me, and I want to be respectful of your time. But there's a couple other things I want to touch on. Um, one in particular, that, uh, a subject that's near and dear to, to my heart, and that the, the reason this podcast is called the Coptimizer podcast is because we talk about cop optimization. Uh, officer safety and wellness is, is I, I've spent a lot of time working in that area. Um, Indiana. Uh, Indiana is not a presumptive benefit state. And uh, for those that don't know what presumptive benefit states are, presumpt- uh, it, it's ultimately for people that work in public safety. If you work in a job that's very high risk, then there are rules that are in place, uh, OSHA rules and other things that can provide assistance to those workers. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of cops. Um, it's not even close. Like, I know we tend to focus on things like ambush and officers getting killed in the line of duty, which are, which are very important that we need to focus on. But the well-being of police officers, because they're working shift work, they're working very high stressful environments. Uh, the health is not very good. And um, I don't know if this is something that's even on your radar yet, but I just wanted to put it on your radar while we were chatting about this. Uh, 37 of the 50 states, last I checked, were presumptive benefit states. Indiana is not one of them. And if we were, then if an officer were to have, if in the way that it's set up, and I think Nevada runs this way, if you're on the job for more than five years and you have a, a, a medical-related issue, such as a heart attack, that can be associated with your profession, then there are benefits that come to you that, that you know, the, the cost and the, and the treatment that doesn't come out of pocket. And it's a, it's a, it's a good thing because it provides protection for the officers, but it's also a good thing because it provides skin in the game for everybody. And if we can do that, then because also <laughs> one, one of the things that I get a little concerned about is that we, we don't have physical fitness standards in policing. You, you have to meet a certain criteria to be able to graduate from the academy and get certified as an officer. But after that, very few, very few agencies have requirements, and and sometimes that can lead to um, poor poor health, and that which also can lead to poor performance. So, it's probably a much bigger topic than for right now. But, and I'll shut up with that. But, is that something that that 
you've ever heard about or is that something you've thought about? Now, you're representing what I love about this journey we've been on for the last two years. Um, you learn something new every day. Uh, and so that, that's been very fascinating. I've not heard some of those stats. And so that's something I, I will really enjoy learning more about. But I think it goes to the broader issue of, you know, governing 6.8 million people has a lot of um, challenges. Yep. And um, you don't, you know, one person cannot be a subject matter expert on, you know, 30 agencies. Uh, and that's how many agencies we have, and there's all these verticals within the agency. So yeah. this is where humility kind of comes in. You have to surround yourself with, with really gifted people who can educate you and bring to to you information, and then you have to also then surround, you know, empower people to go, you know, really solve some of these challenging issues. So I really, I think this is a good example, Patrick, of what's happened over the last two years. A lot of our ideas like zero-cost adoption, came out of people coming to me with, we have a challenge and a problem here. How could we solve it when we adopt a child and it costs 10, 20, $30,000 for the aftercare? Uh, well, we don't want to put families in distress when they've adopted children and are loving on them. So that's kind of some of the things that came with zero cost adoption. Or, you know, when you look at the teacher investment program, we have a teacher crisis and then you're pointing out, you know, this situation this is what we hope voters continue to do with us and what we hope people around the state continue to do is give us feedback as the things that need to be improved so that as we empower you know leaders across the across government state government and even local government we can begin to address some of these issues that's awesome and you know along those lines one other topic um and I, I certainly appreciate that because every you know everybody wants what they want, right? <laughs> we could go back to having discussions about kids or, right here. We can link it to that, <laughs> but I won't go there. But you know, you know, every every year come Christmas time, you know, kids always have a list, right? And you know, we're always looking to Santa, and and sometimes we have a you know, as residents of a state, we might look towards state government as Santa Claus, um, but you know. Santa Claus is, is, you know, in reality, when we're coming to, uh, you know, divvying up the resources that we do have. In policing in Indiana, I, I have experienced this personally now because I am now a recent retiree. I, um, I am a member of the, the, the PERF fund. And as a retiree, I was the chief for 10 years, but my pension is based on a patrolman first class salary. And... I don't, you know, I don't necessarily have a huge issue with that because I like the fact that we're trying to protect the solvency of the pension fund to always ensure that the money's going to be there for everybody, regardless of what job and what role you did, because the patrolmen are, are, are the ones that are carrying the load out on the street. They're doing, they're doing the hard work. But when you're looking at the professionalism of, of policing and you want to incentivized to get your best people into the into the positions of supervision and leadership then you have to incentivize it the right way so we can do that at the local level with pay but in in the policing world a lot of people don't realize this when i tell them they just assume that oh you're a retired chief you can you can just retire and go do whatever you want now and it's like well that would be great uh, not necessarily true um so, so the, the crux of it is, is how do we invest in our pension system to be able to, 
for for police and fire to make it maybe match what we see in teachers and other unions where officers can you know their percentage is based on their their top three years of salary because it, it, here's why it's a problem if i'm if i'm a patrol officer and i have a i have a ton of responsibility i have a very important job to do and now now you're going to ask me to be a sergeant and be a supervisor now not only do i have to worry about what i'm doing but i also have to worry about what others are doing and then you can you can extrapolate that out through the chain of command in a, in in police departments, what's the incentive then if, if, if pay differential isn't that great, how do we get people to want to engage in these leadership positions where they're going to take on that extra responsibility so we can elevate the profession? If, you know, in, in 10 years, it's like, man, I could have just worried about myself, just kept my nose to the grindstone. And by when I retire, I, I don't, I didn't, wouldn't have all these worries. So, I don't know if you've given any thought to that, but there's another thing I'm going to put on your radar for you. All right. Uh, duly noted. <laughs> duly noted. And I think, again, this is the kind of great discussions. I think when you get the right people in the room, you could begin to tackle some of these issues and figure out creative solutions. I know one of the concerns that has been shared with me is a lot of police officers uh, do after-hour work. And in that process, they get paid. And in that process, they put money into, uh, you know, into uh, – the federal um, tax like, withholding. Um, okay. I, I forget it, it's slipping me, but uh, well, yeah, social security. Yeah. Basically. So in Indiana, we actually, you know, our, we don't pay into social security if you're a member of PERF. So we don't, so when you, but when you work side jobs, when you do. side jobs, you do. Yeah. And as I understand it, they're concerned and you can help me with the technical term, but they work this side job and make, let's say 10,000 a year and they pay into uh, social security. But then when they retire, they're not allowed to collect what they paid into the system. And I think there's a technical term for that that slipped on my mind at the moment. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, I, but I do think that you are eligible for Social Security if you if you qualify with enough points for Social Security. I'm not, I'm not an expert in that, so that's I'll, I've, now I've got myself a little homework assignment that I'm going to have to do. Well, this is one of the concerns people have shared with me that, of course, this is a federal issue with the federal delegation uh, but it's something to keep uh, an eye on is, you know, these are the creative solutions that we could maybe come up with that would make it uh, easier for uh, people to retire and, and easier for people to um, to have, you know, have the benefits they need to have a successful life during retirement. So um, I think these all things are things that we can discuss and be a part of a, a journey together as we try to figure it out. And that's great because, you know, Indiana, when it comes to when you when you look at police officer pay and you look at surrounding states and some of the benefits, you know there's, you know there, um, there there are no health benefits that come with that pension either. So generally, officers when they do retire, and I think it's good to have a system where you because you you know policing, especially policing on the street, is a young person's is a young person's job. And when you get uh, and I'm in my mid fifties, so I can you know I can say this from a, a personal perspective. And I work very hard to stay in shape, and I feel like you know that was always one of my goals. Like I could go work the street any day if I needed to. Um, but we, I don't necessarily know that we want people working in a patrol, you know, in a patrol uh, role at sixty two or sixty five. And and I think that's why police pensions were set up the way that they were, is to incentivize that you know we can move. 
we can move people through the system in, a, in an efficient way and then, you know, have them retire at an age where they can still retire. And then, and the problem is, I think we, we, we are creating uh, an environment where if, if we don't have another career to move on to or we don't have a spouse that somebody has insurance, then, you know, then we really are kind of, um, you know, you're kind of in a trick bag. So it, it is definitely something that I think deserves uh, uh, some close attention to and some scrutiny about how we can incentivize for a lot of different reasons. One, we want to elevate performance. Um, and we want to do that in a way that we're respectful for officers' health and well-being and for that of their families. And then also be able to uh, retire them in, in, a, you know, in, a, in a way that they're healthy also. Hire healthy, retire healthy, uh, be prosperous, and, 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 and hopefully live a long, healthy life in retirement and, and be able to see their, their grandkids. But the national data is not good on retirement for police officers. Uh, the, the longevity for police officers, the average lifespan is anywhere from 18 to 24 years below the national average. Uh, and like I mentioned before, uh, cardiovascular disease rates like 18 times that of the general population. So we've got a lot of work to do. And, um, and I'm looking forward to maybe uh, hearing more of uh, your ideas and your solutions about how we can do that, how we can get creative and, and, and maybe how we aim fire ready. Well, I, I want to sort of in, you know, this from my perspective on this note, um, you know, we're, we are very grateful um, as a family for uh, the the service that people, whether it's uh, our police, our fire, uh, we, 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 we go to sleep at night feeling very comfortable that, you know, we, in fact, in, at least in my community, we feel safe and, and we are safe. And we're very grateful because not very many jobs do you wake up every day with the notion that, you know, if I go fight this fire, I could get killed. You know, if I go do my job as a police officer, um, you know, I'm putting my life on the line. And, you know, most of us, you know, know that things can happen, but we don't wake up every day going to a job where, um, where we're protecting people and serving them. And, and so we're just very grateful for what um, the police community does for us. We know that we are able to run successful businesses because of, uh, of our commitment to law and order and how we enforce it. And uh, we are very grateful that when we make the phone call that they show up and they help us. Uh, and so, um, and we also understand that, you know, we need to make sure that we are all accountable, right. For making sure that we do the best job we can every day. Amen. Uh, and so, uh, I'm just wanting to express gratitude for you, Patrick, and for the people uh, like you who have served. Uh, we're um, very grateful for that. And I think that's an important part of gratitude to me is an important part of hu hu the human experience. Uh, what I see uh, when people start to struggle is when they lack gratitude. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, it's been, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how things go as, as we, uh, we roll through the summer and into this fall. No shortage of things to work on, right? No shortage. Not, not just on the policing side, but we're looking at, you know, that's where I'm coming from in my perspective. But um, I'm also a Hoosier myself, and I want the best for Indiana. And I'm also a little bit competitive, so I like I like to win. I like for Indiana to, to set the bar and, and, and show the rest of the country about what we can do. And great leadership is where it's at. So thanks again for spending some of your valuable time with us. You live in a great community and I can speak to this. You've got a great police department here. You've got great 
great leadership. And uh, I know a lot of Fort Wayne officers and their chief and their deputy chief and good folks up here. So you're in good hands up here in Fort we Wayne. Are. And We are. Thank you. Thank All you, right. Patrick. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, until our next episode, we'll be 1042.